A Reading of E.T. the Extraterrestrial and His Adventure on Earth by William Kotzwinkel, based on the screenplay by Melissa, Melissa Matheson, read by Figmentation of Your Imagination. Chapter 1. The spaceship floated gently, anchored by a beam of lavender light to the earth below. Were someone to come upon this landing site, they might, for a moment, think that a gigantic old Christmas tree ornament had fallen from the night sky, for the ship was round, reflective, and inscribed with a delicate gothic design. Its mellow radiance, the scattering of something like diamond dust on its hull, would make one look again for the ornamental hook at its point, by which it had hung in a far-off galaxy. But there was no one nearby, and the ship had landed purposefully, the intelligence commanding it beyond navigational error. Yet an error was about to be made. The hatch was open, the crew out and about, probing the earth with strangely shaped tools, like little old elves caring for their misty, moonlit gardens. When here and there the mist parted and the pastel light from the ship's hull fell upon them, it was clear they weren't elves, but creatures more scientifically minded, for they were taking samples of flowers, moss, shrubs, saplings. Yet their misshapen heads, their drooping arms, and roly-poly sawed-off torsos would make one think of elfland, and the tenderness they showed the plants might add to this impression, were someone of earth nearby to observe it, but no one was, and the elfin botanists from space were free to work in peace. Even so, they started in fear when a bat twittered by, or an owl hooted, or a dog barked in the distance. Then their breathing quickened, and a mist-like camouflage surrounded them, flowing from their fingertips and from their long toes. Then they would be hard indeed to discover. Then a solitary walker in the moonlight might pass by the misty patch, never knowing a crew from ancient space huddled there. The spaceship was another matter. Enormous Victorian Christmas tree ornaments don't fall to the earth with great frequency. Their presence is felt by radar, by military intuition, by other scanning devices, and this gigantic bauble had been detected. It was too big to be missed. No protective fog could completely cover it on earth or swinging in the tree of night. So, an encounter is at hand. Government vehicles are out. Government specialists are earning their night's pay, bouncing around the back roads, talking to each other on radios, closing in on the great ornament. However, the little old crew of botanists are not really disturbed, not yet in any case. They know they have time. They know, to within the most subdivided increments of time, how long it will be before the gruff, clumsy noises of earthly vehicles sound in their ears. They have been here before, for the earth is large and there are many plants to pick, if one wishes to have a complete collection. They continued their sampling, mist flowing about each of them as he walked back with his prize from earth's soil. Up the hatchway they went, and into the lovely ornament's interior pastel glow. They moved unconcernedly through its pulsing corridors of technological wonders, and into the central wonder of the ship, a gigantic inner cathedral of Earth's foliage. This immense greenhouse was the core of the ship, its purpose, its specialty. 
Here were lotus flowers from a Hindu lagoon, ferns from the floor of Africa, tiny berries from Tibet, blackberry bushes from a backcountry American road. Here, in fact, was one of everything on earth, or nearly everything, for the job was not yet done. Everything flourished, were an expert from one of Earth's great botanical gardens to come into this greenhouse, he would find plants he'd never seen before, except in fossil form, imprinted in coal. His eyes would certainly pop to find alive plants the dinosaurs had dined on, plants from Earth's first gardens incalculable ages ago. He would faint and be revived with herbs from the hanging gardens of Babylon. From the fanning roof line, moisture dripped with nutrients that nourished the countless species that embellished every surface of the ship's core, the most perfect collection of vegetation on earth, old as the earth is old, old as the little botanists themselves who come and go, and the crinkling lines at the corners of their eyes have the look of fossils too, etched over immense ages of gathering. One of them entered now, carrying a local herb, its leaves already drooping. He took it to a basin and placed it in a liquid that affected its disposition at once, leaves suddenly reviving, roots waving. At the same moment, from a rosette window above the basin, a pastel light came on, bathing the plant and causing it to stand up straight again beside its neighbor, a little flower of antediluvian make. The extraterrestrial botanist gazed at it for a moment to see that all was well, then turned and recrossed the greenhouse. He moved beneath he moved beneath Japanese cherry blossoms, hanging Amazon flowers, and some ordinary horseradish that leaned his way lovingly. He patted it and walked on, back through the pulsating corridor and down the glowing hatchway. Out in the night air, his body exhaled faint mist again, which surrounded him as he walked along to gather more plants. A colleague passed him, holding a wild parsnip root. Their eyes did not meet, but something else took place. Their chests glowed simultaneously, an inner red glow from the heart region suffusing their thin, translucent skin. Then they passed, the one with his parsnip and the other empty-handed, down a rocky incline, his heart light dark once more. Mist shrouded, he entered tall grass, tall as his own head, and came out the other side at the edge of a redwood forest. There, dwarfed by the enormous trees, he turned back toward his ship, and his heart light glowed again, as if he were signing to the ship itself, to the beloved old ornament he'd been riding in for ages. On its catwalks, in its hatchway, other heart lights glowed like fireflies moving here and there. Satisfied that his protection was near, and knowing there was still time to work before danger came, he entered the redwood forest. Nighthawks sang, insects creaked in the shadows, and he walked on through. His naturally distended stomach skimmed the surface of the forest floor, hobgoblinish, though it was actually a perfectly suitable arrangement, giving him a low and stable center of gravity. Here, it was not a form that earth folks could readily take to, However, it was not a form that earth folks could readily take to, these large webbed feet coming almost directly out of a low-hanging belly and long hands trailing ape-fashion behind it. For this reason, he and his colleagues were million years shy and never had the inclination to make contact with anything other than the plant life of earth. A failing, perhaps, but they'd monitored things long enough to know that to Earthmen, their beautiful ship was first of all a target, and they themselves material for a taxidermist to display under glass. 
So the extraterrestrial moved cautiously, quietly through the forest, eyes searching around, bulbous eyes, enormously convex, the kind you might find on a giant frog hopping along. He knew what chance such a frog would have for survival on a city street, and he rated his own about the same. As for giving instruction to humanity at some seat of international government, it was out of the question when your nose was like a bashed-in Brussels sprout, and your overall appearance was like that of an overgrown prickly pear. He waddled along in perfect stealth, knuckles brushing the leaves. Let some other visitors from space of more familiar form be humanity's teachers. His only interest was a little redwood sapling he'd had his protruding eye on for some time up ahead. He stopped beside it, examined it carefully, then dug it out, murmuring to it in his gravelly space tongue, words of weird, unearthly shape. But the redwood seemed to understand, and the shock to its root system was neutralized as it lay in his great creased palm. He turned, and a faint light reached his eyes, light that attracted him from the little suburb in the valley beyond the trees. He'd been curious about it for some time, and tonight would be the last night he could investigate, for tonight a phase of investigation ended. His ship would leave Earth behind for an extended period until the next great mutation in Earth vegetation, a period to be marked by centuries. Tonight would be the last chance he'd ever have to peek in the windows. He crept out of the stand of redwoods and lowered himself to the edge of a fire road cut through the hillside. The sea of yellow house lights glowed tantalizingly. He crossed the fire road, stomach dragging through the low brush. On the long voyage back through space, he'd have something to offer his shipmates. The tale of this little adventure into the lights, a lone prickly pear on the human road. The ancient crinkle lines at his eyes smiled. He tiptoed down the edge of the fire road on great webbed feet with great long toes. Earth wasn't perfect for his form. He'd been wrought on a planet that made sense out of feet like this. Where he'd come from, things were more fluid, and you could sort of paddle along and only infrequently have to waddle on solid ground. The house lights flickered below, and for a moment his own heart light answered, glowing ruby red. He loved Earth, especially its plant life, but he liked humanity, too. And, as always, when his heart light glowed, he wanted to teach them, guide them, give to them the stored intelligence of millennia. His shadow shuffled before him in the moonlight, head shaped like an eggplant on a long stalk of a neck. As for his ears, they were hidden in the folds of his head like the first shy shoots of baby lima beans. No, Earth would have too good a laugh were he to walk up its aisle of world government. Not all the stored intelligence in the universe was enough when people were laughing at your parish silhouette. He kept it hidden in the moonlight with faint mist attending it and proceeded on down the road. Inside his head, he received the warning signal from the ship, but knew it was premature, knew it was to give the more clumsy-footed members of the crew time. But he, he swung one duck-webbed monster of a foot forward and then the other. He was fast. By any standard of speed on Earth, of course, he was impossibly slow. An Earth child could move three times as fast. One had almost run him down with a bicycle one terrible night. Close. Very close. But not tonight. Tonight, he'd be careful. He stopped, listened. 
The ship's warning signal came on again, thumping in his heart light, the code of alarm. The instrument fluttered lightly, calling for a roundup of all crew members' second preliminary message. But there was time enough for the swift. He waddled left, right, left, knuckles fairly swimming in the leaves as he dragged along toward the edge of the town. He was old, but he moved well, faster than most ten-million-year botanists with feet like marsh ducks. His great orbicular eyes rolled, scanning the town and the sky and the trees and the ground immediately ahead. No one was coming from any direction, only himself, coming in for one quick look at an earthling, and then goodbye for several rounds in the beloved ship far from here. His orbiting gaze jumped suddenly forward, down the fire road where a shaft of moving light appeared, followed by another, twin lights racing toward him out of nowhere. Simultaneously, his heart alarm went into the panic stage. All crew return! Danger! 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 He stumbled backward, then sideways, disoriented by the advancing light, which was much faster than a bicycle, much louder and much more aggressive. The light was blinding now, harsh earth light, cold and clear. He stumbled again and fell off the fire road into the brush, light streaking between him and his ship, light cutting him off from the redwood forest and the clearing beyond it where the great ornament hovered, waiting. Danger! 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 His heart light flashed wildly. He reached for the little redwood sapling that had fallen on the road, its roots crying out to him. His long fingers advanced and drew back in a blur as the blinding light struck and then roaring engines. He rolled in the brush, frantically covering his heart light with a loose branch. His great eyes snapped, taking in detail on all sides, but none more horrible than the sight of the little redwood sapling crushed by the vehicles, young leaves mangled, its consciousness still crying out to him, Danger! 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 Light and more light followed on the fire road, a road that had always been empty but now echoed with the sound of vehicles and human voices, shouting, raging, intent on capture. He struggled through the brush, fluttering heart light still hidden by his hand, while the cold light sought for him, sweeping the brush. All the star intelligence in seven galaxies could not help him move faster in the foreign element. His duckish toes, how absurdly useless they were. He felt the swiftness of human feet upon their own ground, advancing all around him, and knew what a fool he'd been to tempt them. Their quick thumping sounded, and cold streaks of light cut the brush over and over. Their alien tongues bellowed, and one of their number, with much jingling at his waist, was on the scent. In the flashing light, the old botanist saw the man's belt with something hanging from it like an assemblage of teeth, jagged-edged, trophies possibly, wrenched from the mouth of some other unfortunate space creature and placed on a ring. Time! 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 called the ship, rounding up its last straggling members. He lunged under the surging plants to the edge of the fire road. The vehicles were scattered, as were the drivers. He turned on his protective mist and glided across the road in the moonlight, blending with the foul exhaust from their engines, the noxious cloud momentarily adding to his camouflage. And then he was across the road and sliding down a low ravine. Just as quickly, their cold lights turned, as if sensing where he'd crossed. He huddled against the sand and rock as the earthmen leapt across the ravine. His orbiting eyes raced upward, and he saw the horrible ring of jingling teeth, grinning, hide grinning hideously as its owner leapt over him. He crouched deeper into the rock, 
mist around him, no different from other little patches of fog one sees in ravines by night where the moisture clings. Yes, I'm just a cloud, earthlings, one of your own insignificant. Don't probe it with your lights, for there is a great long neck inside it, and two webbed feet with toes as long and spindly as the roots of a purplish toad shade plant. You wouldn't understand, I'm sure, that I'm on your planet to save your foliage before you completely annihilate it. The others jumped over him, dark voices excited, enjoying the hunt, and well-armed. He scampered up after the last one had passed and entered the forest behind them. His only advantage was his knowledge of this beloved terrain from which he'd been gathering. His eyes revolved quickly, locating the trail, a faint indentation in the gathering of branches that netted the darkness, a path he and his crewmates had made while bearing the seedlings away. The rough, ungracious light stabbed the dark, shining at different angles. The earthmen were confused now, and he was navigating directly along back to the ship. His heart light grew brighter, the energy field of his group strengthening it as he neared them, all their hearts calling to him, as well as the hundred million years of plant life on board calling, Danger! 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 He rushed between the sweeping lights along the single clear path in the forest, his long toe roots feeling each impression with exquisite sensitivity. Each tangle of leaves, each spider web was known to him. He felt their gentle messages speeding him through the forest, saying, This way! This way! He followed, fingers trailing the soft floor, long roots dragging, wiggling, receiving signals from the forest, while his heart light blazed, eager to merge with those hearts in the clearing where the great ship waited. He was ahead of the cold light now, its beams entangled in branches that had admitted him, but which denied his pursuers. Branches sprang out, locked together, and blocked their passage. A low root lifted slightly, tripping the fellow with the ring of teeth, and another root trapped the foot of his subordinate, who fell face flat on the ground, cursing in the tongue of the planet, while the plants cried, Run! 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 The extraterrestrial ran through the forest to the clearing. The grand ornament, jewel of the galaxy, waited for him. He waddled toward it, toward its serene and beautiful light, light of ten million lights. Its wondrous powers were all converging now, emitting supreme waves of radiance that reflected all around. He pushed along through the grass, trying to become visible to the ship, to put his heart light in touch, but his long, ridiculous toes were entangled in some weeds that wouldn't let go. Stay, they said, stay with us. He yanked loose and pushed forward into the outermost aura of ship light just at the edge of the grass. The radiant ornament shone through the stalks all around him, casting its glorious rainbow. He spied the hatch, still open, and a crewmate standing in it, heart light flashing, calling to him, desperately searching. I'm coming, I'm coming. He shuffled through the grass, but his hanging stomach, shaped by other degrees of gravity, slowed him, and a sudden group decision flooded him, a feeling that swept through his very bones. The hatch closed, petals folding inward. The ship lifted off as he burst from the grass, waving his long-fingered hand. But the ship couldn't see him now. Its enormous power thrust was being employed, blinding light obliterating all detail in the landscape. It hovered momentarily, then departed, spinning above the treetops, the lovely ornament returning to the outermost branches of the night. The creature stood in the grass, his heart light flashing with fear. He was alone, three million light years from home. E.T. and his adventure...
E.T. the Extraterrestrial and His Adventure on Earth by William Kotzwinkel, read by, read by Figmentation of Your Imagination, Chapter 2. Mary sat in the bedroom, feet up, half reading a newspaper, half listening to the voices of her two sons and their friends playing Dungeons and Dragons in the kitchen below. So, you get to the edge of the forest, but you make a truly stupid mistake, so I'm calling in the Wondering Monsters. Wondering Monsters, thought Mary, and turned her newspaper. How about suffering mothers, divorced with low support payments, living in a house with children who speak a foreign tongue? Can I get Wondering Monsters called out for just befriending a goblin? The goblin was a mercenary for thieves, so be grateful you only have wandering monsters to deal with. Mary sighed, folding her paper. Goblins, mercenaries, orcs, you name it, she had it down in her kitchen, night after night, as well as the rubble of a ruined city of crush bottles, potato chip bags, books, papers, calculators, and horrible oaths pinned to her memo board. If anyone knew in advance what it was to raise kids, they'd never do it. Steve's dungeon master, he's got absolute power. Absolute power. Mary stretched out her aching feet and wiggled her toes. As head of the house, she should have be, she should be the one with absolute power, but she couldn't even get them to dry a dish. I feel like an orc. She had only a vague notion of what the creature was like, but it seemed to approximate the way she felt. Orcish. The subterranean voices continued with their deranged dream directly under her bedroom. What are these wandering monsters? Humans, said the dungeon master. Heh, <laughs> the worst. Listen to their qualities. Megalomania, paranoia, kleptomania, schizoid. Schizoid, said Mary, toward the wallpaper, the way I've begun to feel. Have I raised my babies to be dungeon masters? For that, I work eight hours a day. It wouldn't be so bad, maybe, if my own life were as as spontaneous as theirs, with surprise calls from my admirers. She went down the list of her admirers, but had to admit there was something orcish about them, too. Okay, then. I run ahead of the humans and shoot just my little arrows at them to make them chase me. My lead arrows. My youngest son, thought Mary, listening to Elliot's thin, squeaky voice. My baby, shooting lead arrows. She felt as if she'd been shot with one, right in the thyroid gland or whatever it was that ran her energy down into the pits where the orcs lived. She needed a lift so badly. I run down the road. They're after me. Just when they're about to get me and they're really mad, I throw down my portable hole. Portable hole? I climb in and pull the lid closed. Presto, disappeared into thin air. If only I had one, she thought, to climb into about 4.30 every day. You can only stay in a portable hole for ten mil rounds, Elliot. All I need it for is about ten minutes at the office, and maybe a little later, in heavy traffic. She swung her feet off the bed in a firm resolution to face the evening squarely without any anxiety symptoms. But where was romance? Where was the exciting male in her life? He was waddling down the fire road. The road was silent now. His pursuers gone, but he could not last long in this atmosphere. Earth gravity would get to would get to him, and the ground resistance twist his spine out of shape. His muscles would sag, and he'd be found in a ditch somewhere with no more definition than a large bloated squash. What an end for an intergalactic botanist. 
The fire road dipped, and he followed it toward the lights of the suburb below. He swore at those lights which had so fatally attracted him, and which attracted him now. Why was he descending toward them? Why did his toe-tips tingle and his heart-light flutter? What, what help could there be for him there in alien circumstances? The fire road ended in low shrubs and bushes. He crept through them stealthily, keeping his head low and holding one hand over his heart-light. It fluttered enthusiastically, and he cursed it, too. Light, he said to it in his own tongue, you belong on the rear end of a bicycle. The bizarre house forms of earth were frequent, were directly ahead, held down by gravity, unlike the lovely floating terraces of, it was bad to think of home. Such memories were torture. The moth light of the houses grew bigger and still more compelling. He stumbled through the brush and down a sandy bluff, his long toes tracing outlandish tracks there upon a winding path that led toward the houses. Directly ahead of him was a fence he'd have to climb. Such long fingers and toes as he had were good for getting a grip on obstacles. He climbed like a vine to the top of the fence, but toppled down the other side, stomach upward, feet flailing. He hit, limbs splaying in every direction, a whimper of pain on his lips, and rolled pumpkin-like across the lawn. What am I doing here? I must be mad. He braked himself and froze on the alien ground. The earth house was awesomely near, its lights and shadows dancing before his terror-stricken eyes. Why had his heart light led him here? Earth houses were grotesque, horrible, but something in the yard was sending soft signals. He turned and saw the vegetable garden. Its leaves and stems moved in shy patterns of friendliness. Sobbing, he crept toward them and embraced an artichoke. Hiding in the vegetable bed, he took counsel with the plants. Their advice, to go look in the kitchen window, was not welcome. I'm in all this trouble, he signaled the plant, because of wanting to peek in windows. I can't repeat such folly. The artichoke insisted, grunting softly, and the extraterrestrial crept off obediently, eyes whizzing around in fearful circles. The square of kitchen light radiated outward, ominous as any black hole in space. Vertigo filled his limbs as he dropped into this unspeakable vortex at the outermost edge of the universe. His eyes came up past a plastic weather vane with a mouse and a duck balanced on it. The duck was out, carrying an umbrella. At a table in the middle of the room sat five, sat five earthlings engaged in ritual. The creatures were shouting and moving tiny idols around on the table. Sheets of paper were waved, bearing dark secrets, for each earthling kept hidden from the other what was printed on there. Then a powerful cube was rattled and tossed, and they all watched its six-sided form land just so. Again they shouted, consulted their tablets, and moved their idols as their alien tongues sounded in the night air. I hope you suffocate in your portable hole. Listen to this. Lunacy. Hallucinator insanity. Yeah, read some more. This form of malady causes the afflicted to see, hear, and otherwise sense things which do not exist. He sank down from the window into darkness again. The planet was unspeakably strange. Could he ever learn the ritual, throw the six-sided cube himself, and be accepted? Vibrations of monstrous complexity floated out to him from within the house, intricate codes and signals given back and forth. He was ten million years old and had been a great many places, but he'd never encountered anything as complicated as this. 
Overwhelmed, he crept away, needing to rest his brain in the vegetable patch. He'd peeked into earth windows before, yes, but never from so close, never partaking so intimately of the bizarre thought patterns of the people. But they are only children, said a nearby cucumber. The ancient botanist let out a whimper. If what he'd just heard were the thought waves of children, what must those of the adults be like? What impenetrable intricacies awaited him there? He slumped down next to a cabbage and lowered his head. It was all over. Let them come in the morning, take him away, and stuff him. Mary showered, attempting to revive herself. Then, wrapping her head in a towel, she stepped onto the bath mat, which Harvey the dog had chewed to pieces. The ruined fringes played between her toes as she dried herself and slipped into her imitation silk kimono. She turned to the mirror. What new wrinkle, what tiny sag, what horrible erosion would she detect this evening to complete her depression? Damages seemed slight, but one never knew. One couldn't begin to anticipate the childhood atrocities that might overtake the house at any moment. Fights, drugs, unbearably loud music, to hasten her physical and moral decay. She applied some outrageously expensive moisturizing cream and prayed for peace and quiet. It was broken immediately by Harvey the dog barking his head off from his exiled post on the back porch. Harvey, she called out the bathroom window, shut up! The animal was ridiculously suspicious of things that passed in the dark. It made her feel the neighborhood was filled with strange characters. If he'd barked just at them, he'd be useful. But he barked at the pizza wagon, at airplanes, at faint satellites, and suffered, she feared, from hallucinator insanity, not to mention eating bath mats. She yanked the window open again. Harvey, for heaven's sake, pipe down! She slammed the window shut and left the bathroom. What lay ahead of her down the hall was not appealing, but she had to cope. She opened the door to Elliot's room. It was piled with objects of every sort of uselessness to the point of decay. A typical boy's room. She'd like to stuff it in a portable hole. She began. Organizing, discarding, filing, she hung his spaceships from the ceiling, rolled his basketball into the closet. She had no ideas for the stolen street sign. She hoped he wasn't paranoid or something. She suspected Elliot had much the matter with him, being fatherless, joyless, and having a penchant for hanging out with wandering monsters in his every free moment. Taken all around, he wasn't even nice, but maybe it was just a stage. Elliot, she called to her little orc. Of course, there was no answer. Elliot, she shrieked for him, thus raising her blood pressure and deepening the shriek lines around her mouth. Elliot's footsteps thundered on the stairs, then rumbled along the hall. He whipped around the doorframe, all four feet of him, adorable in some respects, none of which were visible at the moment, as he looked suspiciously at what she'd done to his collection of trash. Elliot, do you see what this room looks like right now? Yeah, I won't be able to find anything. No dirty dishes, clothes put away, bed made, desk neat. Okay, okay. This is what a mature person's room is supposed to look like all the time. Why? So that we don't feel like we're living inside a litter basket, all right? Yeah, all right. Is that a letter from your father? Mary pointed to the desk, to the handwriting she knew so well, from all the master charge slips it had appeared on. What did he say? Nothing. I see. She tried casually to change the subject. You want to repaint in here? It's getting grungy. Sure. What color? Black. Cute. A healthy sign. I like black. It's my favorite color. You're squinting again. Have you had your glasses off? No. 
Mary, the dungeon master called from below, your song is on. She leaned her head out the door. Are you sure? Your song, Mom, said Elliot. Come on. She heard faintly the sound of the persuasions coming from the kitchen. She followed the beat down the stairs, Elliot in front of her. Did your father mention you guys coming for a visit? Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving? He knows Thanksgiving is mine. But when had he ever been consistent, except on the bottom line of charge slips where he'd worn out numerous ballpoints, buying parts for his motorcycle? She thought of him, zooming somewhere, moonlight on his heavy-lidded eyes, and sighed. Oh, well, she'd have Thanksgiving dinner at the Automat or the Chinese restaurant, the turkey stuffed with MSG. Elliot ducked away from her, and Harvey started barking again at an approaching car. The extraterrestrial dove between rows of vegetables and flattened himself out there, arranging a few leaves over his protruding shape. There's nothing to fear, said a tomato plant. It's only the pizza wagon. Not knowing what a pizza wagon might be, the extraterrestrial remained in the leaves. The wagon stopped in front of the house. A door in the house opened, and he saw an earthling emerge. That's Elliot, said the green beans. He lives here. The extraterrestrial peeked over the leaves. The earthling was only slightly taller than he was, but the earthling's legs, of course, were grotesquely long, and his stomach did not hang on the ground in the elegant manner of certain higher life forms, but he was not too terribly frightening to behold. The boy went down the driveway and out of sight. Go around the side, said the tomato. You'll get a good view of him returning. But the dog, the dog's tied, said the tomato. He ate Mary's overshoes. The extraterrestrial scampered out of the vegetable patch and circled the house, but the lights of the pizza wagon suddenly swept the yard as it turned in the drive, and he panicked. Wrenching himself along, he leapt onto the fence and started to climb over. One of his long toes accidentally depressed the gate latch, and he found himself swinging back into the yard. The earthling was near, was looking his way. Quickly, he covered his heart light, dropped from the gate, and dove into the tool shed, where he crouched, fearful mists surrounding him. He'd trapped himself, but there were tools in the shed, a digging fork with which to defend himself. In many ways, it resembled tools from his ship, for gardening is gardening. He gripped its handle in his long fingers and prepared to meet his attacker. A cornered intergalactic botanist is not someone to trifle with. Don't stab yourself in the foot, said a little potted ivy. He braced. From the garden, he felt the mental wave of a nearby orange tree as one of its fruits was plucked by the earth child. A moment later, the fruit hurtled into the tool shed and struck him in the chest. The little old being tumbled backward, sinking down on his large, squashy bottom, the orange bouncing off him onto the tool shed floor. How humiliating! A botanist of his stature pelted with ripe fruit. Angrily, he grabbed the orange, wound up one of his long, powerful arms, and whipped it back into the night. The earthling cried out and scampered away. Help! Mom! Help! Mary chilled all over. What acceleration of the aging process was she about to undergo? There's something out there, shouted Elliot, bursting into the kitchen. He turned, slammed the door, and locked it. Mary weakened deeply, looked at the Dungeons and Dragons display, and desperately wished for a portable hole large enough for all of them. What was she supposed to do now? It hadn't been mentioned in divorce court. And the tool shed, babbled Elliot. It threw an orange at me. Ooh, mocked Tyler, the dungeon master. Sounds dangerous. The boys got up from the game and headed for the door, but Mary got in front of them. Stop. You all stay right here. Why? Because I said so. She drew herself up, 
tossed her head bravely and grabbed the flashlight. If it was a burglar, she'd be the one to go out and frighten him away. You stay here, Mom, said Michael, her older boy. We'll check it out. Don't get condescending with me, young man. Alongside her, another of the dungeon crowd, young Greg, had grabbed a butcher knife. Put that down, said Mary, and gave them her withering stare of absolute power. They pushed past her, opened the door, and rushed out into the yard. She followed, hanging on to Elliot. What exactly did you see? In there, he pointed at the tool shed. She shined her flashlight inside, onto pots, fertilizers, hoes, shovels. There's nothing in there. Michael's voice sounded across the lawn. The gate's open. Look at these tracks, shouted the dungeon master, rushing toward the gate. Their gross, tangled tongue meant nothing to him, but the ancient voyager could see their forms clearly now from his hiding place on the sandy hillside. There were the five earth children, and who is that exotic creature with them? His heart light began to glow, and he quickly covered it over. Deftly, he waddled closer to see more of this tall, willowy being who accompanied the children. She did not have a nose like a bashed-in Brussels sprout, nor the shape of a sack of potatoes, but... He crept a little closer. Okay, party's over. Back in the house. Greg, give me that knife. The clang-banging syllables of her language were meaningless to him, but he sensed that she was mother to this crew. Where was the father, towering and strong? She threw him out years ago, said the green beans. Here's the pizza, said Greg, picking it up. Elliot stepped on it. Pizza? Who said you could order pizza, huh? Mary passed under the porch light, and the extraterrestrial gazed at her from his hiding place, thoughts of escape temporarily set aside. Foolish heart light, he said to that peculiar organ which fluttered now, you belong on, on a pizza wagon. Mary shooed them back into the house, satisfied that the worst had passed. Elliot had been fantasizing again, that was all, and had merely given his mother a few more frown lines. It was just a stage he was passing through. There was something out there, Mom, I swear. Tyler mocked. You're full of it, Elliot. Hey, said Mary, no talk like that in my house. They knew too much. They were out past her at every turn. All she could hope for was some kind of standoff, but she sensed it was impossible. All right, everyone, time to go home. We didn't eat the pizza. It has footprints in it, said Mary, desperately wishing to have quiet restored. But of course they ignored her and began eating the stepped-on pizza. She dragged herself back toward the stairs, feeling quite stepped on herself. She'd lie down, put some herbal pads on her eyes, and count iguanas. She turned at the top of the stairs. When that pizza's done, everyone out. A rumbling grumble sounded from the dungeon. How nice it must have been when children went to work at the age of nine. But those days, she felt, were gone forever. She stumbled into her room and collapsed on the bed. Just another typical evening in the life of the gay divorcee. Cold chills, shock, and wandering monsters. She applied her eye pads and stared blindly toward the ceiling. Something seemed to be staring back, but that was just her overwrought imagination, she knew. And if that damn dog doesn't stop barking, I'm going to leave him beside the highway with a note in his mouth. She breathed deeply and began counting her lizards, each of them shuffling toward her in a friendly sort of way. The Dungeons and Dragons game moved stealthily to the playroom, everyone playing but Elliot, who went to his own room, sulking. He fell asleep with odd dreams disturbing him, of immense perspective patterns, lines angling in to form doorway after doorway, leading to... space. 
He ran through, but more doorways were always ahead. He was not the only one in a strained mood. Harvey the dog chewed through his leash and snuck off his back porch post. He tiptoed up to Elliot's room, slunk in, and pawed down. He contemplated Elliot's sleeping form, then contemplated Elliot's shoes, but eating them would only make waves. But he was nervous and ill at ease. Needed distraction. He had not especially enjoyed his evening bark at the moon. Something weird had entered the yard, and Harvey's fur had stood up straight, little whimpers escaping his snout until he'd pulled himself together and begun yapping in the expected fashion. What had been out there? He didn't know. He began a half-hearted wash of tail parts, soft tongue slurping, teeth rounding up a few fleas. Then suddenly he heard the sound again. Elliot heard it too, was sitting up in bed. Harvey growled, first standing stiffly, eyes darting fearfully about. He needed to bite someone, settled for skulking alongside Elliot, out the door of the bedroom, down the steps, and through the house to the backyard. The elderly space being had slept on the sandy hillside, but then had risen again and gone back toward the house. The windows had all been dark. He'd found the gate latch, depressed it with his toe in the correct manner, and entered, much as an earthling might but his lumpish silhouette on the moonlit lawn told him he was far from being one of those creatures. For some odd reason, Earth's stomachs had not evolved in the pleasantly round downward style his had into a stomach of substance, a stomach in touch with the terrain. Earthlings were like luckless string beans, strung up on their latticework of bone and muscle to the very snapping point, while he was a comfortable creature, low-slung and contemplative, Musing in this manner, he waddled across the yard to have another strategy meeting with the vegetables, but his large foot depressed the hidden edge of a metal garden tool, and its handle rose up toward him at a high rate of speed. It struck him in the head, and he fell backward with an intergalactic scream, then dashed into the little patch of corn nearby. Moments later, the back door opened, and an earthling rushed out with the cowering dog. Elliot charged across the yard, flashlight on, and shone it into the, into the tool shed. The cold beam played over the tools again, and Harvey leapt into the fight, biting a, hole in the pe biting a hole in the peat bag, which made him feel much better, but left him with a mouthful of moss. He danced about, somewhat muffled, snapping at shadows. In the corn patch, the extraterrestrial lay crouched, clutching a cucumber, ready to do battle. His teeth were grinding fearfully, and he trembled all over. The cornstalks separated. The boy looked in, screamed, and dove to the earth. The space creature backed off through the cornstalks and hurried for the gate, big feet flapping. Don't go! The boy's voice had the edge of gentleness in it, as young plants have, and the old botanist turned to look at him. Their eyes met. The dog of the house was racing in circles, barking, moss flying out of his mouth. A peculiar diet, thought the elderly space scientist, but did not linger to investigate further. Harvey's teeth flashed in the moonlight, but the boy collared the dog, crying again to the spaceman, Don't go! But the ancient being was already going, out the gate and into the night. Mary woke beneath her iPads and felt the house was tilted somehow on its side. She rose, put on a housecoat, and stepped into the shadows of the hall. Voices came to her from the playroom. Often enough, she wondered when the, what they played at in there. Posters of beautiful space princesses seemed essential to their pleasure. My babies, she sighed to herself. 
Then, upon hearing the playroom, she heard Tyler's voice and Steve's and Greg's, the Dungeoners whom she'd specifically told to go home. Of course they'd ignored her command. Of course they were spending the night in what appear before their own mothers tomorrow, bleary-eyed, acting as if they'd been up all night. I can't take much more of this. She tightened her housecoat and prepared to attack, but the door was half open, half open, and she saw flashing red light, their homemade laser show in time to soft music. The effect was soothing, she had to admit. And wasn't it creative? Anyway, it'd certainly give her a headache. Like a wounded camel, she slouched back into the shadows, back into the shadows, just as Elliot bolted up the steps and rushed into the playground playroom. You guys, there was a monster in the backyard. A monster? Hey, I'm getting a real Martian together here. It was a goblin, about three feet tall with long arms. He was in the corn patch. Shut the door before you wake mom. The door closed. Mom walked slowly back toward her room. The house wasn't tilted on its side. Elliot was, tilted all out of shape. E.T., the extraterrestrial, and his adventure on Earth a novel by William Kotzwinkle, Chapter 3. It was here, right here. The extraterrestrial listened to the voices of the men, who still paced back and forth upon the landing site. Watching from the trees, he could infer the meaning of their speech. Here, a wondrous craft had been and had escaped them. Here, a ship of wonder, such as their planet could only gape at, had descended and taken off again, and it slipped through my fingers. The leader, bearing the jingling ring of teeth, turned, turned again. His subordinates nodded stupidly. Their leader entered his vehicle and departed, and they followed him. It was day, and the landing site was empty. The extraterrestrial stared mournfully at the traces the ship had left. It slipped through my fingers. He raised a hand limply. Exhaustion had set in on him, and hunger. The powerful ration tablets he and his crewmates survived on, compressed little miracles of nutrition, were not of earth. He had tried to chew a few bunch berries, found them most unsatisfying, and spat out the hard little seeds. During ten million years of gathering wild plant life, he'd never found it necessary to learn necessary to learn which ones were nutritious, and it was late in the game to start now. Oh, for one tiny ration tablet loaded with energy. He slouched back in the brush, weak, depressed, and itching all over from a species of trumpet creeper he'd sampled. The end was near. Elliot pedaled along the street toward the far hills. He did not know why. The headlight of his bike was like a magnet heading for iron, buried in the hills. Yes, the bike seemed to know where to go, and he rode with it. Elliot was what is generally called a twerp. He cheated at Parcheesi. He had a shrill, screeching voice that came and went like a genie in a bottle, but always said just the wrong thing, in class or at home during dinner. Whatever he could avoid in life, he avoided, hoping Mary would take care of it for him, or Michael. There were other things. The list was long, including thick eyeglasses that made him feel like a frog in a bottle. All in all, a blossoming neurotic, a twerp. His path in life led nowhere, but if a place could be pointed to on a map of the soul, Elliot's destination was mediocrity, miserliness, and melancholy, the sort of person who falls under a train. Something of this sort awaited him a child psychologist would t something of this sort awaited him a child psychologist would tell you, except that Elliot's path had veered today into the hills. He followed the bike's urgings up to the fire road. 
He climbed off and walked it over the walked it over the cut foliage. His bike was dented and rusty from his having tossed it aside so often, abandoning it to rain. But today it seemed light as a feather. Today it seemed to shine like new, right through the rust. It led him through the forest along a winding path. Elliot came to the clearing and knew something incredible had been there. Everything seemed to bear the memory of the great ship. Squinting through his glasses at the imprinted grass, he could almost discern the shape the ship had been. Elliot's heart was beating wildly, and were there a light in it, it would have been on. His forehead seemed to be on fire, caught in the afterglow of an immense power that still lingered in the clearing. The old space being in the nearby bushes did not reveal his presence, for the boy's unpleasant dog might be sniffing about too, with hopes of biting a distinguished scientist on the ankle. But no, the youth seemed to be alone. Still, it was best to remain unnoticed. An extraterrestrial was about to expire in the underbrush, and there was no point in involving strangers. The boy, however, proceeded with a peculiar series of acts. He brought a bag from his pocket, from which he took a tiny object. He placed the object on the ground, walked a few paces, placed another, and another, and another until he was out of sight, far along a hidden path. The ancient traveler crawled feebly from the bushes. Curiosity was his worst character trait, but he was too old to change now. On hands and knees, he entered the clearing to see what the youth had deposited there. It was a small, round pill, bearing a remarkable resemblance to a space nutrition tablet. He turned it over in his palm. Upon it was printed an indecipherable code, M and M. Yes, uh, to take to go away from the story for a moment, uh, they actually were supposed to contract M the M&M company, the M&M company uh, for the making of the film, but that didn't wind up going through because M&M thought that E.T. would be a major box office failure. So they withdrew their contract with Steven Spielberg, and as such, the crew had to turn to another candy company, which... Uh, decided to just stick its neck out and be like, well, hey, at least we'll be in the movies. And that was Reese's Pieces. So there you go. A little bit of E.T. history. Anyway, he put it in his mouth and let it dissolve. Delicious. In fact, exquisite. Indeed, he'd never tasted anything like it anywhere in the galaxy. He hurried along the trail, eating one pill after another, strength returning, hope surging in his heart. The trail led him to the boy's house once more. Mary served dinner. It was one of her better meals. Raw wheat germs sprinkled on canned macaroni and cheese with a handful of cashews tossed in to give a last touch of class. Eat your supper, Elliot. He was hunched as always over the main course, as if preparing to snorkel his way into it. I have raised a depressed child. Mary's mind flashed to previous dinners, those of another period when Elliot was younger and she and her husband had thrown butter knives at each other. An entire chicken had bounced off the wall and mashed potatoes had hung from the ceiling like stalactites, dripping gravy onto Elliot's tender young head. It could not have been good for him. She tried to brighten this present meal with chatter. Well, how's everyone going to dress up for Halloween? The dread evening was approaching fast. Her house would be visited by several hundred children singing off-key and then staring at her. Elliot's going as a goblin, said Michael. Stuff it, snarled Elliot. Young man, Mary wrapped her fork on Elliot's glass, eat your macaroni. 
Nobody believes me, said Elliot, and gazed still more glumly into their gay repast. Mary stroked his hand. It's not that we don't believe you, honey. It was real, I swear. Elliot looked at her from behind his thick lenses, over large eyes filled with pleading. Mary turned to Gertie, the last child in the family, five years old and already asking for her own apartment. Gertie, honey, what are you going as? Ha- what are you going as on Halloween? Bo Derek. The image of her infant daughter parading down the block flooded Mary's taxed mind. She fumbled with her macaroni and tried to think of another subject, but Michael was circling back in on Elliot. Maybe, said Michael in his superior brother way, it was an iguana. I've got the iguanas, said Mary softly into a cashew. It was no iguana, said Elliot. Well, said Michael, you know how there are supposed to be alligators in the sewers? Alligators, thought Mary. I could start counting alligators as a change. She closed her eyes and a great big one appeared, teeth sparkling. She turned back to Elliot. Elliot, all your brother is saying is that you probably just imagined it. This happens. We all imagine lots of things all the time. I imagine myself entering the sale rack and finding a displaced Dior for two dollars. I make a stunning entrance into McDonald's. I couldn't have imagined it, said Elliot. Maybe, said Michael, it was a goon or a deformed ape. Michael, she gave him her silencio look. Why were children's minds so enamored of freakish explanations? Why was every dinner conversation like this? Where was the elegant banter of refinement as the second course, frozen fish sticks, was served? Well, persisted Michael, ignoring her order for silence as he ignored all her other orders, maybe it was an elf or a leprechaun. Elliot threw down his fork. It was nothing like that, dog breath. Dog breath? Mary sat back eyes wide. How had that expression come into her little family circle? Elliot, you're never to use that expression at the dinner table again or anywhere else in this house. Elliot slouched back into the tablecloth. Dad would have believed me. Why don't you call him and tell him if his phone is still connected, which I doubt? I can't, said Elliot. He's in Mexico with Sally. Mary maintained her poise, sagging only a little way into the fish sticks as the name of her former friend, now hated enemy, was invoked. Children can be so cruel, she reflected, especially Elliot. If you see it again, whatever it was, don't go near it. Call me and we'll have someone take it away. Like the dog catcher? asked Gurney. Exactly. Harvey growled softly on the back porch where he was chewing the welcome mat. But, said Elliot, they'll give it a lobotomy or do experiments or something. Well, said Mary, it should learn to stay out of other people's cucumbers. However, it was crawling from the trees as the town slept. It had never heard of a lobotomy, but it had reason to fear being stuffed. The aged creature's toes carried him along quietly toward the boy's house. Down the hillside he went, leaving the mark of a large melon being dragged by a pair of duck-billed platypuses. The boy's house was dark, only one tiny window glowing. He peered over the fence, great eyes rolling up, down, around. The dog was nowhere in sight. Let me just get my toe up on the latch in the accepted fashion and then swing in on it. The great M&Ms have given me my vitality back, a miraculous food. The ship would return in a thousand years. If the M&Ms held out, perhaps he'd make it. Stop dreaming, you old fool. You'll never get back there. He looked at the sky, but not for long, for the sadness written in it was too great. No amount of M&Ms would keep him going if the love of his shipmates was gone from his sight. 
Why had they deserted him? Couldn't they have held on a moment longer? He closed the gate behind him with his foot, as he'd seen the boy do. He must learn these ways of earth if he was to succeed. He tiptoed across the backyard. To his surprise, he found the boy asleep in a sack beside the vegetables. The child was breathing lightly. A faint mist escaped his lips, for the night was cold. The extraterrestrial shivered himself, and his own mist poured out of his toes. Mists of worry, fear, confusion. Suddenly, the boy's eyes opened. Elliot looked up into enormous eyes, eyes like moon jellyfish with faint tentacles of power within them, eyes charged with ancient and terrible knowledge, eyes that seemed to scan every atom of his body. The extraterrestrial stared down, horrified by the boy's protruding nose and large, exposed ears, and worst of all by his tiny little eyes, dark and beady as those of a coconut. But the tiny, sunken eyes of the child blinked, and the terror in them touched the old scientist's heart. He extended a long finger. Elliot shrieked and scrambled backward, clutching his sleeping bag around him. The extraterrestrial jumped in the other direction, stumbling over himself and emitting an ultrasonic squeak, which brought a bat sweeping down out of the darkness, but only momentarily, for one pass at the space monster sent the aerial rodent fluttering back into the night, teeth chattering. Elliot's own teeth were, clinking like, were clicking like a bag full of marbles, while his knees clacked back and forth and the hair stood up on his neck. Where was Harvey the protector, dog of the hearth? On the back porch, teeth clicking, knees clacking. Fur standing up. The terrified beast crouched, sprang at the door, bounced back, and chased his tail. The scent he had in his nose was like nothing he'd ever sniffed before, with aromas of far-flung spaces no sane dog would ever want to investigate. He crouched back down, only the tip of his snout sticking out through a crack in the door. More of the scent floated toward him, and he cringed and began chewing the end of a broom. The creature from space was taking another tentative step toward Elliot. Elliot's eyes widened in terror, and he stepped backward. He had zero courage, had errands to run, homework to do, chores to perform, a thousand things, anything but this. Monstrous eyes scanned his nature. He could feel the probes far down in himself, shooting energy through him, questioning, calculating, analyzing. The hideous creature's lips were shaped in a frightening grimace, sharp little teeth grinding together. What did it want? Elliot felt it trying to communicate. The ancient wanderer held out his hand and opened it. Within the huge scaly palm was his last M&M, melting. Elliot looked down at the little candy, then looked up at the monster. The monster pointed a long finger into his palm, then pointed to his mouth. Okay, said Elliot softly. He opened his jacket, took out his bag of M&Ms, and backed slowly away, continuing to lay a trail across the yard. His knees were still knocking and his teeth still clicking violently, upsetting some expensive orthodontic work. The elderly space traveler followed, picking up each M&M and swallowing it down hungrily. This was the food of the gods, of kings, of conquerors. Were he to survive this ordeal on Earth, he would bring a sample of this miraculous food to his captain, for with it vast universes could be crossed in supreme flight. Chocolate dribbled from the corners of the spaceman's mouth. His fingers were coated with it, too. He licked it off deliriously, his strength returning. 
he could feel the miraculous substance coursing through his veins, bearing its secret chemistry to his brain, where blips of joy and light were going off. Now he understood the meaning of earth life, ten billion years of evolution to produce the M&M. What more could one ask of a planet? Grabbing at the little pills, he tracked his way quickly across the lawn, and before he knew it, he had followed the trail into the earthling's house. His eyes revolved in terror. The alien world surrounded him on all sides now. Each corner, each object, every shadow was a devastating shock to his system. But he had to endure it in order to acquire the miraculous M&M. He followed the trail up a flight of stairs and down a hallway to the boys' room. There, the child rewarded him with a handful of M&Ms. He devoured them in one gulp. It seemed a rash act, but who knew what tomorrow would bring? The boy's voice box sounded. I'm Elliot. The words were a jumble, incomprehensible, but anyone who would share their M&Ms could be trusted. The extraterrestrial sank down on the floor, exhausted. A blanket came around him, and he slept. Elliot lay awake for a long while, not daring to sleep. The monstrosity was on the floor beside his bed, grotesque shape outlined beneath the blanket. Where had it come from? He only knew that it wasn't from this earth. He fought to understand, but it was like trying to take a handful of fog. Waves of power filled the room, visible the way heat in the desert is visible, in a shimmering dance that rises upward. Within that shimmer, Elliot felt a brilliant awareness moving. Even while the creature slept, a sentry seemed to watch in its shimmer and to study the room and the windows and the night. A low whine from the hallway told Elliot that Harvey had slipped off the back porch again and that the dog was crouched outside his door. He heard a gnawing sound of teeth on the door frame and the thump-thump of the dog's tail. "'What's in there?' the perplexed canine was asking himself as he nervously chewed wood. The shimmer that Elliot saw was touching him, too, probing his muddled dog thoughts. The cur whimpered and pawed the door, then sank back down, not really wanting to be let in, not wanting to get any closer to the shimmering wave that pulsed like an old bone. A choice bone, an ancient bone, but one of the frightening sort, with thunder in the marrow. Elliot turned on his side and put one arm under his pillow. Sleep was after him, though he wanted to watch, to stand guard. But his eyelids were heavy, and he was sliding into home plate, sliding, sliding, down, down, down. He landed on a parcheesi board, the one he cheated on, and his feet seemed mired in it. But then he saw a trail of little candies, each one glowing like gold, the trail of M&Ms he'd laid for his monstrous friend, and the trail became a beautiful road through the world, and he took it. E.T., the extraterrestrial, and his adventure on Earth... By William Kotzwinkel, Chapter 4. The extraterrestrial woke up next morning not knowing what planet he was on. Come on, you have to hide. The space creature was pushed across the room into a closet and shut in behind its louvered door. In a few more minutes, the rest of the house woke. The creature heard the voice of an older boy and then that of the mother. He huddled in the closet as the mother entered and spoke. Time for school, Elliot. I'm sick, Mom. The extraterrestrial peeked through the louvers of the, closet do- of the closet door. The boy had returned to bed and seemed to plead with the tall, willowy creature. She placed a tube in the boy's mouth and left the room. 
The boy quickly held it up to the light above his head, heated the fluid within it, and placed it back in his mouth as the mother returned. The old scientist nodded, a trick known around the galaxy. You have a temperature. I guess I do. You waited outside last night for that thing to come back, didn't you? The boy nodded. The woman turned toward the closet. The extraterrestrial shrank back into the corner, but only her hand entered, going to a quilt that lay above him on a shelf. She placed it upon the boy. Think you'll live if I go to work? She thought he was probably conning her again, but he had been having some rough nights lately. His eyes looked a little strange, but his father's eyes had been frequently dilated, with delusions of one thing and another. Maybe it was hereditary. Okay, she said, you can stay home, but no TV, understand? You are not to disintegrate in front of the box. She turned and went through the doorway, then paused, looking down at the doorframe. Has that dog been chewing up here again? I'm going to have his teeth capped with rubber. She marched off down the hall, but after a few steps, she tilted as if a wave had washed over her. She steadied herself and felt her forehead. A faint ripple ran across it, like fairy fingertips touching her. But, the, but a moment later, it was gone. She opened Gertie's door. Rise and shine! The child sat up, blinking, then cheerfully put her legs over the side of the bed. I was dreaming about the goon, Mommy! Oh, really? He had a long, funny neck and big, bulging eyes. It certainly sounds like a goon, thought Mary, but she couldn't slow down for further speculation. Time for breakfast. You go and help Michael. She continued onward into the bathroom for a brief morning wash with some ridiculously expensive soap that melted faster than ice. The bar, full-size two days ago, was now a teensy-weensy transparent sliver, but a friend had told her it prevented wrinkles, blemishes, pimples, and warts. She lathered up. The soap vanished completely, and that was that. Another six-dollar bar of nothingness down the drain. She dried off, and a dream of the recent night rose out of her morning fog. A dream about a man, but a very short man with an enormous pot belly and a funny, waddling walk. Must have been something she ate. She continued on toward breakfast, which was the usual blur, and then out of the house to the driveway where Michael was practicing his driving, backing the car toward the street. Here you go, Mom, he said, stepping out. Thank you, dear, she said, getting behind the wheel and gripping it with her regular grim determination. She popped the clutch, gave it too much gas, and squealed away from the house, Michael cheering her. Elliot, hearing the departure, got out of bed and opened the closet door. The extraterrestrial shrank back. Hey, come on out of there, said Elliot, extending his hand. Reluctantly, the old monstrosity waddled forward out of the closet and looked around. A wide variety of objects met his gaze, all of them queer-shaped, most of them plastic. The only familiar item was a desk, but too high for one with such short legs as his, as his own. And did he think he might write a letter and mail it to the moon? What am I going to call you, Elliot, looked into the great flashing eyes of the monster where tiny blossoms of energy kept blooming and fading to be replaced by others. The creature was sensing his way around, and Elliot stood back to give him room. You're an extraterrestrial, right? The extraterrestrial blinked, and Elliot felt the great orbs answering him somehow, but the message was just a buzzing in his brain as if a fly were inside his head. Elliot opened the bedroom door. The monster jumped back for the nasty little beast of an earth dog slavered on the other side, stupid curiosity in his eyes, unfriendliness on his tongue. Harvey, be good. Don't bite or anything. Nice dog. 
Nice, Harvey. The dog's speech was lower down the communication chain than the boy's, sounding like a space cruiser stuck in reverse. See, Harvey? He's okay. He won't hurt you. See? A faint wisp of mist came from the monster's toe. Harvey put his nose into the mist and saw dog dimensions he wasn't prepared for. A great soup bone of light hurtling through the night, flashing, flashing with a howling sound descending into ancient echo chambers of space. The dog cringed, his mind reeling. A fearful moan came from his lips. He backed off, nose down. The monster came forward. Do you talk? Elliot snapped his fingertips up and down like a yakky mouth. The elderly scientist blinked again, then moved his own fingertips, making galactic intelligence patterns, the cosmic supercodes of survival, ten million years worth. Elliot blinked stupidly as the whizzing fingertips described delicate orbits, spirals, angles of physical law. The old creature dropped his hands in frustration, seeing that nothing was grasped, and recollecting again that this was just a ten-year-old child. Well, what am I supposed to do? The aged monster studied the situation. His brain was evolved so far past the boy's powers of comprehension, he could barely think where to begin. I'm too specialized, thought the monster. Let me see. Let me see. He tried to scale himself down to the crude bumblings of earth mentation, but wound up merely twiddling his digits. How could he hope to sign the great equations, those supreme insights born of wandering supersegments of time? He could barely ask for an M&M. Elliot walked over to the radio, turned it on. You like this tune? You like rock and roll? A sound such as the space wanderer had never heard before was pouring out of the radio. Telepathically, he received the image of rocks rolling down a hillside. He covered his sensitive ear flaps with both hands and crouched low. Elliot looked around, trying to think of other important things a creature from space should know about. He fished a quarter out of his bank. Here's some of our money. The ancient traveler stared at the boy and tried to comprehend his speech, but the tongue of earth was a blur of dull articulation. Here, see? It's a quarter. The object offered was small, flat, round, with a shiny coating, different-hued from the M&M, but possibly this was even stronger survival food. He bit down, a piece of junk. Yeah, right, said Elliot, you can't eat that. Hey, are you hungry again? I'm hungry. Let's go have something to eat. Harvey, Elliot admonished the dog, out of the way. Harvey whined and tiptoed aside, then followed Elliot and the monster downstairs to the kitchen. He crouched by his dog bowl and signaled Elliot that he wanted some Alpo to settle his nerves, a whole canful which he'd gobble down in one bite. But Elliot ignored the request and Harvey had to settle for toothing the edge of his dish. Elliot was opening drawers, taking out the ingredients of his favorite breakfast. Waffles, he said, and started stirring up some batter. They're my specialty. You ever have them? The elderly botanist watched as peculiar items appeared, none related to space travel. He watched, great eyes revolving, taking in increments of incomprehensible action, except that a long tentacle of goo was flowing off the cupboard onto the floor. Harvey, in the manner of a wet mop, quickly tongued up the spilled batter, while Elliot managed to get the rest of it into the waffle iron. There, see? It's cooking. The old monster's nose twitched, and he waddled over to the waffle iron. It smelled delicious, like a large M&M. 
Elliot removed the finished waffle and opened other cupboards and drawers. Syrup, butter, canned fruit, and how about a little whipped cream to top it off? The monster jumped as the ozone moved. And the boy's hand erupted in a white stream. Don't be afraid. This is a good dish. Elliot put an M&M atop the whipped cream and handed the waffle to the hoary old time traveler. And here's a fork. You know how to use one of these? The aged scientist looked at its sparkling tines. It was the best piece of machinery he'd seen so far in the house. Soft lights came to his mind. Yes, an object with four prongs attached. To what? For an instant, he felt his escape mechanism flash deep in his mind where its image was slowly forming. Hey, you eat with it, see? Like this, like I'm doing. The, the scientist fumbled but managed to scoop up the M&M. He ate it and proceeded to the white cream below, tasting astounding chemical arrangements crossed and crisscrossed, their formulas signaling him as he forked on, like eating one's way through a cloud. Excellent, excellent stuff. How about some milk? Here, have a glass. The fluid danced about, jumping out on his fingers, and his lip arrangement did not easily admit the shape of the glass, so he poured most of it on his chest in a stream that ran over his heart light area. Boy, you don't know anything, do you? The old voyager stared at the fork again while spearing pieces of the crusty food, four times, sounding, click, click, click. What's the matter? You make me feel so sad all of a sudden. Elliot's whole body swayed, caught in the high, powerful wave that had spilled over him. Emotions he couldn't comprehend filled him up to the brim, as if he'd lost something incredibly wonderful that should have been his always. Click, click, click. The aged creature had his own eyes closed in contemplation of the heights. Might there be an ear an immense distance of, at immense distances away, listening to the song of four times? But how? How could the universe be crossed by this small instrument? The elderly botanist wished he'd paid more attention to the talk of the navigators and communication crew, for they knew more of these subjects than he. We're going to have fun, said Elliot, shaking off the sadness and taking hold of the old monster's hand. Come on. The long, root-like fingers entwined with his, and Elliot felt he was leading a child younger than himself. But then the rippling wave washed over him again, bearing star secrets and cosmic law, and he knew the creature was older than he was by a great deal. Something altered inside Elliot, turning just slightly like a gyroscope that mysteriously writes itself. He blinked, amazed at the feeling, the feeling that he was a child of the stars too, and had never done anything to hurt anybody ever. He led the waddling monster back to the staircase. Harvey followed, dog dish in his teeth in case any loose kibble might be discovered along the way. Elliot led the parade into the bathroom and over to the mirror, for he wondered if the creature had ever seen himself that way in a looking glass. See, that's you. The venerable star rover looked at his image in the crude reflective glass of Earth. His higher communication patterns were not visible, could not be seen rainbowing above his head in brilliant, subtle waves. The handsomest part of his visage was gone. Okay, this is a hand. Elliot held up the appendage. The space fossil followed suit, lifting his own in an elementary movement of the higher category, his fingers twinkling formulas of high-speed rocketry, interstellar shortcuts, and cosmic prophecy. 
Boy, have you got weird fingers, the child blinked in a slow earth fashion, studying the digits themselves instead of their subtle signaling. Ah, me, sighed the star wizard. He is dumber than a cucumber. This is where our water comes from, said Elliot, turning the faucets. See, hot and cold. How about that? Do you have running water where you come from? The old being took a handful of water and raised it to his face. His eyes shifted into microfocus, and he tracked for a moment out of habit into the world of tiny aquatic forms. You like water, huh? Look at this. This is great. Elliot turned on the faucets in the bathtub and motioned the extraterrestrial to get in. Go on. It won't kill you. The archaic wanderer leaned over the tub, which was much like the study tanks on the great ship, where a scientist might recline and explore the inner aquatic universe. In a fit of melancholy, he entered the tub. A bell sounded. The scientist jumped in his bath, great feet splashing. Was he being secretly monitored by the water? Was this the laboratory then in which his own waves were to be measured? Relax, it's just the telephone. Elliot left the room and the creature submerged himself in the tub of water, calmed by its flow, comforted by the dance of its microorganisms. He closed down his breathing apparatus to the standby system and stretched out completely underwater. He entered atomic focus and began reviewing the water molecule, watching its latent heat force. Could he use it somehow to aid himself? Harvey the dog edged cautiously toward the tub. Some of his worst moments had been in there during the annual flea bath. He peered over the edge at the present occupant of the tub, who seemed to have more liking for it. Harvey was reminded of a large old snapping turtle he'd once attempted to mug. That meeting had turned out badly, a terrible bite on the nose being the final outcome. Thus, the dog's reluctance to do more than just gaze at the submerged guest. Was Elliot going to shampoo him? Elliot returned, looked down, and yanked the creature up. Hey, you can drown doing that sort of thing. Harvey saw there'd be no shampooing. The guest apparently had no fleas. Are you part aquatic elf? asked Elliot. As long as he's not part snapping turtle, thought Harvey, and placed a paw gingerly over his own nose just in case. Here's a towel. You know how to use one? Towel? The veteran of the supernova stared stupidly at the item, his own skin having a water-repellent sheath. He took the towel, looked at it, looked at the boy. Here, dry yourself off, dumbbell. The boy's hands touched him. Earthly fingers tinged with healing components entered his aching back. Thank you, young man. That's very kind of you. See, we each have our own towel. That's mine, Elliot pointed. That's Michael's. That's Gertie's. And that's Mom's. That one used to be Dad's. He's down in Mexico. You ever fly there? The monster blinked, receiving a sad wave of feeling from the boy's communication band. The boy stepped closer and spread his arms like wings. You fly all kinds of places in your ship, right? You have a ship? The ship, Shining softly, appeared in the space being's mind, lavender light beaming around its hull where the ancient inscriptions were carved. His own light of the heart gave a tiny glow in response, and now the boy's sadness was his own. You keep that towel, said Elliot. That's yours. We'll mark it E.T. for extraterrestrial. He touched the monster again, amazed by the texture of the skin. Another wave went through Elliot, and he knew that the creature was older than Methuselah, older than old. You're something like a snake, too, aren't you? Boy, you are really weird. The scientist felt the boy's energy going doop, doop, 
Doop, down his inner channels. Most interesting, these earth forces. Crude but kindly if you gave them half a chance. The monster signaled back with his own fingers, explaining the structure of the atom, the love of the stars, and the origin of the universe. You hungry again? How about some Oreo cookies? Harvey nodded and wagged his tail. Oreos were fine by him. Not his favorite food, but a dog who eats the ends off brooms is not fussy. He toothed his dish and held it out to Elliot, who walked on by, leading the monster. All right, thought Harvey, I'll just tag along. He followed them down the hall to Elliot's room, where cookies were dispensed to the goblin. Harvey growled and thumped his dish. You're too fat, Harvey. Fat? The dog turned in profile to show his ribs, but his ability to con Elliot was slipping. The monster was Elliot's pet now. Harvey sought what nutrition remained in one of Elliot's hiking boots. Across the room, Elliot was opening the closet door and addressing the monster. We've got to fix you a place in this closet. Make it like the space shuttle, okay? With everything you need. But the elderly interstellar was staring up at the... Skylight of the room. Stretched across it was a painted dragon, wings spread outward and soft shafts of sunlight shining through it. You like that? Here, here are some more. Elliot opened a book on the floor and he and the monster looked at it. These are goblins. These are gnomes. The monster's eyes went through a series of focusing arrangements, including one that revealed the origin of the fibers composing the paper and back out again to the painted, pot-bellied little creature, not altogether unlike himself, staring up from the page. Had other travelers been stranded here long ago? Elliot left the creature to look at pictures and began arranging the closet with pillows and blankets. He had not stopped to ask himself why he was harboring the monster or what it meant. He'd been flying on automatic pilot without questions, without doubling back on himself, without trying to duck out. He knew this thing had been handed to him from the stars and he had to follow or, or die. You'll like it in here, he called through the door. His mind and body moved almost without effort, signals pulsing inside him. He couldn't know that a cosmic law had touched him, gyrating him in a new direction. He only knew he felt better than he'd ever felt before. Harvey the dog did not feel the same metamorphosis of being. Gnawing on boot heels did little for his soul, still less for his stomach. He contented himself with the thought of biting the mailman on the ankle, an event scheduled for mid-morning. Elliot went down the hall and came back with a bowl of water, which gave Harvey momentary hope, but the bowl was placed in the closet with instructions to the goblin. That's for you, and the whole thing is your command module. Elliot lined up a number of stuffed animals at the mouth of the door. That's protective camouflage. You stay in line with them, nobody will know the difference. The bewildered old super-being stared dumbly at the arrangements. Harvey stared too, a faint desire moving in him to gnaw the head off a teddy bear. Elliot stepped forward with a desk lamp. Light. See? He switched it on, and the harsh glare of its crude interior assaulted the Voyager's super-sensitive eyes. He backed up into a record player, his arms scraping the needle across the record. In spite of the unpleasant scratching sound, soft lights went off inside him, and again he was filled with developing blueprints for escape, using a fork and, and something that turns, like this thing I've just bumped into. It'll turn and it'll scratch. A message. 
He gazed at the record player, seeking his solution there, as his own inner wheels turned, bearing all that he knew of communication devices. He stumbled around, looking for other bits of hardware. He opened the desk drawer, tumbled its contents on his feet. Hey, said Elliot, take it easy. I'm supposed to keep this place neat. The wanderer explored other parts of the room, dumping, tossing, seeking. He must examine it all, and it was all so strange from this primitive planet's groping creativity. Where was he to find his inspiration? He stared up at a poster tacked to the wall of a beautiful Martian space princess clad in loose bits of shining metal. Hmm. He contemplated her for some moments, her ray gun, her helmet, her electric boots. You like her? asked Elliot. The old voyager slowly lowered his hands, in, then out again, describing the more classic form of beauty, the downward-sloping pear shape. We don't have too many like that around here, said Elliot. Then he put his hand to the old monster's elbow and led him gently toward the closet. You stay in there, okay? Stay. The time-worn traveler shoveled, shuffled into the little enclosure. He who had once supervised the plant life and the grandest mansions of space was being closeted with a skateboard. He slumped down. Where was his ship, the wonder of the universe, now that he needed her? He received the sudden light of a beacon, deep in space, sweeping toward him, searching Earth from incalculable ranges. See, said Elliot, there's even a little window in here. He pointed to the small square of glass above the monster's head. And here's your reading lamp. He switched it on. Okay, I'll see you later. I'm going to buy some more cookies and things. The closet door shut. The voyager squinted at the harsh light from the lamp, then took a red handkerchief from the closet shelf and placed it over the lampshade. The light softened to a pastel pink, a glow like that of the mothership. He must signal it, must let his crewmates know that he lived. The image of the fork came into his brain again, four times trailing in a circle. Click, click, click. Mary pulled the car into the drive, Fender lightly brushing the ash cans and sending them into an overturned pile. What did it matter? She was home. She turned off the ignition and just sat for a moment behind the wheel, mind and body exhausted. She opened the door and crawled out. Her gaze traveled up to Elliot's closet window, where he'd placed one of his stuffed goblins. The things they make for children these days are enough to cause hallucinations. She continued up the walk and onto the porch. Harvey met her at her, met her at the door, bowl in his mouth. Don't give me that look, Harvey. I have enough guilt. She pushed on past the pleading beast to the mail table. Any letters from secret admirers, wandering monsters? Nothing, just junk, bills, overdue bills, long overdue bills, and a letter from a collection agency. Let them break her kneecaps. She tossed the mail in the conveniently situated waste paper basket and removed her shoes. She called to her tribe. Anybody home? She received no answer, except from Harvey. Take that bull out of your mouth. She remained in the hall chair, too tired to proceed further. A fly buzzed around her forehead, and she brushed it away, then brushed it away again, then saw there wasn't any fly, and the buzzing was in her head. Next, it'd be bells, and then voices. Well, no time for a nervous breakdown today. She got up and proceeded to the kitchen, where she saw that Elliot had cooked a healthy breakfast for himself on the floor. 
She cleaned off the cupboards, the doors, and then made herself a cup of strong coffee. She sat with it for a long time, contemplating her feet. Tired feet. Feet that wanted to go on strike. Hey, anybody home? They didn't answer her, of course. They were deep in secret projects. Maybe they were plotting to overthrow the government. So long as they do it quietly. The back door banged open with the sound of a cannon, and Michael came in as if mounted on an elephant. Hi, Mom. How was your day? Good. How was yours? Michael shrugged, indicating she knew not what. I'm going to play some football now, he added, indicating that nothing but nothing should stand in his way. Fine, she said. Have fun. Trample on. She gave a flick of her hand as if giving permission, which hadn't been asked for. She resumed, staring into her coffee cup and regrouping her energy. Michael put on his shoulder pads and grabbed his helmet. He was feeling violent today. He was moving. In two strides, he was in the upstairs hallway, but Elliot stood there, blocking his way. Michael, how you doing, faker? Michael pushed on past. I've got something really important to tell you. Yeah, what? Remember the goblin? Goblin? Hey, get out of the way. Wait a second, Michael, this is serious. He came back. Elliot... Michael had little or no use for his younger brother. Elliot was a sort of weasel with nasty little moves, like the ones he usually made in par- like the ones he usually made in Parcheesi. Back off. I'm going to show him to you, but he belongs to me. Michael hesitated. We'll make it fast. Swear first. The most excellent promise you can make. Okay, okay, let me see. What is it, a skunk or something? Do you have it in your room? Mom will kill you. Elliot led Michael down the hall. Take off your shoulder pads, he said as they entered the room. You might scare him. Don't push it, Elliot. Elliot led him over to the closet. Close your eyes. Why? Just do it, will you, Michael? Within the closet, the elderly being was reviewing everything he knew about communication devices, which he must somehow build. He heard the two cabbage heads come into the room, but ignored their approach, more intent on searching his brain for transmitter blueprints. The closet door suddenly opened. Elliot put his arm around him and nodded reassuringly. Come on, meet my brother. They stepped out, just as Gertie, home from nursery school, raced into the room. Seeing the monster, she screamed, as did the monster, and Michael, who'd just opened his eyes. The mingled voices pierced to the command center of the house, where Mary sat, trying to pull herself together. Oh, God. She rose from the kitchen table. What savage ritual was her family enacting now? It sounded like they were pulling Gertie's hair. Mary climbed the stairs, ready to take notes, which she'd give to Gertie when her analysis began. She walked wearily down the hall toward Elliot's room. A full day's work at the office, followed by infant trauma in the home. Just another of life's little challenges. She paused a moment outside Elliot's door. At least the room would be neat. She opened the door. Every object Elliot owned had been dumped on the floor. Mary looked at him. How in the midst of this could he have such an innocent expression on his face? What happened in here? And where? Where? Look at this mess. How is this possible? Oh, you mean my room? This isn't, this isn't a room. It's an accident. Did you hire a whirling dervish? Inside the closet, the old cosmologist huddled between Gertie and Michael. 
The little girl seemed ready to bite him. The boy's mouth was hanging open in a dumb gaze, and his enormously misshapen shoulders were taking up considerable room in the tiny closet. The guest from space hoped this present arrangement would not be permanent, as quarters were cramped already. Cramped enough. He peered out through a crack in the lowered door. At the mother of the house, who was pointing at the debris he'd strewn around the room in his search for transmitter parts, he tried to gauge the friendliness of the earth woman. She wore no metal chains, did not appear armed, and was every bit as attractive as the Martian princess in the poster, though of course she too lacked the supreme beauty of the parish lower silhouette, and had nothing to comment on in the way of long toes. Elliot, I heard Gertie scream. Were you and Michael hurting her in some way? Hey, Mom? You mustn't do things like that, Elliot. It's costly in the end. About $90 an hour, to be exact. Mom, I didn't do anything. Then why was she screaming? I don't know. She just came in, screamed, and ran back out. Mary pondered this. Had she, as a little girl, run into rooms, screamed for no reason, and run back out? She had frequently, and she felt like screaming now. Come to think of it, she'd just been screaming. Maybe she'd scream at Elliot a little more and then leave. I'm sorry, Mom. I didn't mean to scream at you, Elliot. I'm sorry, too. But clean up your room or I'll kill you. Okay, Mom. You bet. Mary turned and left the room. When her footsteps were sounding on the stairs, the closet door opened and Michael, Gertie, and the old monster came out. Michael had changed profoundly in a few minutes' time. He felt he'd been blocked on the 50-yard line by a steamroller. His body was numb, and he kept thinking he was dreaming, that maybe he had gone to football practice, had knocked heads with someone, and was unconscious. But there was Gertie, her regular annoying self, and there was rotten Elliot, life-size, and there was the monster. Elliot, we've got to tell Mom. We can't, Michael. She'll want to do the right thing. You know what that means, don't you? Elliot pointed at the elderly voyager. He'll wind up his dog food. Harvey thumped his tail. Does he talk? No. Well, what's he doing here? I don't know. The two boys looked at their five-year-old sister, who was staring at the creature, her eyes wide. Gertie, he won't hurt you. You can touch him. The stranded old traveler submitted to more probing and prodding, the children's fingertips pulsing their messages inward to his deep receptors, and though the messages were chaotic and confused, these little coconuts weren't stupid, but could they lift him into the great nebula? You're not going to tell, are you, Gertie? Not even Mom? Why not? Because grown-ups can't see him. Only little kids can see him. I don't believe you. Elliot took Gertie's doll from her hands. You know what'll happen if you... You know what will happen if you tell. He wrenched the doll's arm up behind her back. Stop it! Stop it! Promise not to tell? Is he from the moon? Yeah, he's from the moon. Mary lay on the bedroom floor, exercising along with the TV. The show's hosts were a Swedish woman of 50 without a wrinkle and her muscular boyfriend. And one, two, three. Mary struggled to follow them, got mixed up, turned off the sound and just lay there on the rug in her favorite pose, the one in which she looked like she'd been shot in the belly with an arrow. Faintly, from Elliot's room, she heard the voices of her three children. She knew they were hatching some scheme. There was a peculiar tension in the air. 
Was that why her head was buzzing again? Or was it from the bizarre exercise she'd just tried to perform with her ankle behind her ear? She'd never try that one again. Her thigh muscle was still quivering. She looked at the moron on the TV who was silently mouthing instructions to her. Despite his low IQ, she had a crush on him and fantasized jumping hand-in-hand with him into the televised swimming pool while the Swedish woman rotated her big toe with two fingers. Enough. Enough. She switched off the tube. It was time to feed the mouths of hungry babes. All right, she called entering the hallway. Come and help me fix the dinner. Naturally, there was no response, and she proceeded on down the stairs alone. Tonight, we'll have turkey gristle pot pies and... Let me see. Instant mashed potatoes would be a charming side dish, along with a handful of pretzels. She labored over these preparations, her eyes occasionally going to the kitchen window and the yard next door, where her neighbor was riding his lawnmower like a demented giant on a kitty-mobile. Kitty-mobile. Her own yard had no grass, of course, because of Harvey, who insisted on digging it up in search of non-existent bones. He looked at her now, ears begging in that way he had, one up, one down. Who ate the broomstick, Harvey? Anyone we know? Harvey licked his chops, his tongue going up over his nose. Why, Harvey, what did you see that excited you? Did that little French poodle go by again with the bow in her curls? Is that what set you off? Harvey nodded, growling low, then whimpering. Food had not been forthcoming all day. Everyone had forgotten the main business around here of feeding dogs. What was going on? Was it because of the monster upstairs? I'll have to eat him, thought Harvey quietly. Mary went to the stairs and graciously announced dinner. Come down or else. Eventually, there was the patter of rhinoceros steps on the stairs and her brood appeared looking secretive. What are you up to? Come on, I can read you like a book. Nothing, Ma, Michael sat down, Gertie beside him. Gertie looked at the pot pie. Yuck. Shut up, dear. Elliot, please pass the salt. I made a house in the big closet today, Elliot looked shiftily at her. What kind of house? Sort of like a hideout. Oh, really? How did you find the time with all the messing up you had to do? Can I keep it? You're not using it to escape from responsibility, are you, Elliot? Young boys should not spend all their time in a closet. Not all the time, just some of the time. I'll give it careful consideration, said Mary, by which they all knew she had no choice, that Elliot would torment her about it until she capitulated. She tried to change the subject gracefully. Aren't these potatoes delicious? Yuck. Do have some more, Gertie, since you like them so much. I eat better at nursery school, said Gertie. We have big chocolate doughnuts. Really, I must talk to, the head of, talk to the head of the nursery school about that. He's a goon. Gertie, don't use words you don't understand. A goon, a goon, sang Gertie, sang Gertie quietly over her potatoes while Mary put her head in her hands. Upstairs, the ancient fugitive crept out of the closet. The room was before him, a pile of clutter he'd created in his search for transmitter parts, a search he continued now. His eyes swept the room, fine focus on. The electrons of the room appeared, dancing their circular dance, but the inner cosmic whirl was of no help. He needed solid objects, such as the record player. He clicked his focus back to ordinary vision and shuffled over to the machine. The turntable was empty. He put his finger on it and gave it a spin. How does a fork combine with this? Answer to come, over. He nodded. 
Escape was to be through spun signals, spun out into the night, threads of hope, hundreds of millions of them, radiant as the willow creature's silken hair. From below in the house came the sound of forks. He knew it well now, and of glasses, plates, and a distorted jabber that played in his ears. Mama, why do kids see things you can't see? What have you been seeing, Gertie? Elliot's goblin? Mama, what are the people who aren't people? The person who wasn't a person sensed that the children would not purposely betray him, but the little girl could be trouble, for she had no understanding of the need for secrecy. However, for now all seemed secure. Dinner was finishing, a great quantity of M&Ms apparently having been consumed. He hoped that they would bring him some soon. All right, who's doing the dishes? The willow creature's voice came to him, along with her telepathic image, head crowned in waves of radiant fibers, finer than silk. If only her nose were more like a bashed-in Brussels sprout. He spun the turntable again with his finger. Elliot's footsteps sounded on the stair, and then the boy entered the room, carrying a tray. Here's your supper, he said in a whisper, and handed it over. On the plate were some lettuce leaves, an apple, and an orange. The ancient student of plant life took the orange and ate it, peel and all. That the way you always do it? The elderly voyager frowned. His inner system analyzer was advising him to wash it first, next time. How are you making out? You feel okay? Elliot noticed the still-spinning turntable. You want to hear something? The monster signaled that he did. Elliot put a record on and lowered the needle. Accidents will happen, but it's only rock and roll. The old star tracker listened to the peculiar sound and watched the black disc spin, his mind engrossed by thoughts of his transmitter. The ship of wondrous night would not respond to rocks rolling down a hillside. He must send in the true speech of his people. How could he modify this sound? How could he multiply its frequency into the microwave region? His ear picked up the voice of the willow creature down the hall. Gurney, what you doing, sweetie? I'm going to play in Elliot's room. Don't let him tease you. The child entered, pulling a little wagon filled with toys. In it, she had placed a potted geranium, which she set at the old botanist's feet. He stared down at the offering. His heart light fluttered. Thank you, little girl. That is very nice of you. Harvey the dog entered. He sniffed the monster and proceeded to the geranium. Did it need watering? Harvey, be cool. Michael entered, hoping that somehow the monster would have vanished, but it was there and he had to deal with it. He studied it for a moment, then turned to Elliot. Maybe he's just some animal that wasn't supposed to live. Don't be lame, Michael. But I don't believe in stuff like this. I do now. I always did, really. Gertie was emptying her other gifts in front of the monster. Here's some clay. Do you ever play with that? The extraterrestrial took it into his hand and lifted it to his mouth, preparing to bite off a sizable portion. No, silly, you roll it. Gertie showed him how, and he proceeded to roll a ball in his palms. I have an idea, said Elliot. Where's the globe? Michael handed it to him. Elliot turned it in front of the star wanderer to North America. Look, see, this is where we are. The wanderer nodded, recognizing terrain he'd often seen, coming in at an angle like this above the planet in the ship of ages. Yes, he knew the planet too well. Yeah, said Elliot, that's where we're from. Where are you from? 
The old voyager turned, staring out the window at the star-filled sky. Elliot opened an atlas and pointed to a picture of the solar system. Are you from our part of the universe? The monster separated the modeling clay and laid five balls down on the map of the system around a central sun ball. Five, are you from Jupiter? He could not understand their questioning jabber. He pointed at the five balls and released an electron elevator from his fingertips. The balls rose up in the air and floated above the children's heads. The balls orbited there, round and round as the children groaned, the strength seeming to have gone out of their legs. Oh, no. Had he offended them? He switched off the electron blanket and the balls fell to the floor. Then he retired into the closet with his geranium. Mommy, said Gertie, Elliot has a, monst Elliot has a monster in his closet. That's nice, dear. Mary had her feet up on the living room sofa and was doing her best not to listen to the children, something made more difficult now that Elliot had just swatted Gertie with a rolled newspaper. Wah! screamed Gertie. I hate you, Elliot. Stop this! Mary turned within her layer of facial cream, her face feeling like it was submerged in axle grease, beneath which wrinkles were miraculously vanishing, she hoped. Elliot, be nice to Gertie. Why? Because she's your sister. Come on, Gertie, said Elliot in a sudden change of mood. I'll play in the backyard with you. That's better, said Mary, and rotated her head back on the sofa pillows. She stared out through her halo of cream, feeling as if she'd been hit in the face with a pie. But when she scraped it off, the new me would emerge, if the house remained relatively quiet. She listened to Elliot guiding Gertie out through the back door. He could be so loving and gentle with her when he wanted to. If you say one more word about the monster, whispered Elliot as they stepped into the yard, I'll pull all the hair off your dolls. You just try it, said Gertie, little fists balled on her little hips. Gertie, the monster is a great gift to us. Elliot struggled with, struggled with his thoughts, trying to voice this thing he felt, that some high purpose had come into their lives, that it was the best thing that had ever happened to them. We've got to help him. Well, he looks like just a big toy to me, said Gertie. He's not a toy. He's a wonderful creature from there. He pointed to the sky. He still looks like a toy, pouted Gertie, and Mommy said we should share our toys. I'll share him with you, but you've got to keep him a secret. A secret, a secret, sang Gertie. I know a little secret. She looked at Elliot, impish power in her eyes. What'll you give me if I don't tell? What do you want? Your walkie-talkies, Gertie smiled triumphantly. This was the best thing this was the best thing that had ever happened, getting her big brother to give in. Okay, he said, you can have them. And you have to play dolls with me. A pained look came into Elliot's eyes. So all the dollies are having tea, Gertie was in her room, setting the play table. The various dolls were sitting around it, chatting nicely. And my doll says to your doll, aren't boys horrid? And your doll says, Elliot listened to what his doll had to say, and then he said it, making the doll's head move, making her hand reach out for tea. He recalled with fading happiness the times he used to roller skate through Gertie's tea parties, knocking over dolls, chairs, table, and then roll away, laughing. Were those wonderful moments gone forever? Mary passed their doorway and looked in. Why, Elliot, how sweet of you. 
Elliot's going to play dolls with me every night, said Gertie happily. Elliot's dolly groaned and slipped under the table. When Tyler arrived for Dungeons and Dragons, he was greeted by the strange spectacle of Elliot in the kitchen with Gertie, slaving over her little Betty Crocker play stove. Elliot was wearing an apron and had a tiny muffin tin in his hand. Hey, you cracking up? Tyler leaned his lanky, prematurely tall frame against the edge of the door. He was all legs and arms, and Elliot took this opportunity to call him Plastic Man, a name Tyler was sensitive about, conveying as it did his worst fear that he might grow up to be seven feet tall. What are you making, Elliot? Tyler hunched over the little stove where Gertie was puttering in ecstasy, her enslaved brother mixing up some dirt and water. Looks like a brownie. Get lost, will you, Tyler? Elliot wiped his hands on the flowered apron. Yeah, well, we've got a D&D game on for tonight, remember? He's playing with me, said Gertie, for the rest of his life. The back door opened and Greg the Orc entered in his day-glow shirt that made him look like a melting neon popsicle, an impression heightened by the fact that he drooled when speaking. Hey, what's going on here? Nothing, dribble lips, hissed Elliot from his muffin mix. Elliot and I, sang Gertie, are making dragon pies. Greg swung a chair around and sat on it, smiling crookedly, saliva spraying as he spoke. What'd you, hurt her or something? Low, Greg, said Tyler, very low. Greg dribbled on the back of the chair. I've seen everything now. He stared at Elliot, who, so far as he knew, had been like every other brother in the world, taking pleasure in playing with his sister only when the game was interesting. For example, tickling her until she nearly had a nervous breakdown, a game he often enjoyed with his own sister, or tying her to a tree and then tickling her, or crashing into the bathroom with four or five other guys while she was taking a bath and then standing around laughing while she screamed. Those were the right games, but this... Thoughtful drops of spittle ran off Greg's lower lip onto his neon shirt. The last member of the Dungeons & Dragons team showed at the kitchen window. Steve, wearing a baseball hat with fat, floppy wings sticking out from it. He put his fingers behind the wings and wiggled them. Following his debonair greeting, he entered. Don't say anything, snarled Elliot as he slipped his muffins in the little oven. What can I say? Steve wiggled his hat wings again. These things happen. His own sister had blackmailed him. You had to be on your guard. Keep doors locked. Lights off. You had to be cautious. Elliot and I run a little bake shop, said Gertie, singing over her filthy pastries, and everybody buys our cookies, even Santa Claus. She turned the knobs on the oven and closed the door. Then she looked at Elliot and let her impish secret play in her eyes about the monster upstairs. Elliot winced and started another batch of muck muffins.